Hi, I'm Rich Wing. And I'm Rebecca Nixon. And this is the PropTech Growth Podcast. Every episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business. I'm the portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy. I'm Rich from Richwin Consultancy. I specialise in operations, sales and process, helping fintechs and PropTech companies to grow. What would you say is the most common flaw in PropTech startups? Yeah, the most common flaw is the lack of commercial, what I call commercial ideation. So let's solve something. We have no idea if anyone's ever going to pay for this service, but it's just what I think needs to be sorted out. And it does amaze me, but yeah, I'd say that's the most common flaw. And then obviously that leads into later on, ah, we can't get any clients. We can't get any funding. Yeah, that's because what you're looking to build nobody wants i always say to people look if you're going to go to market find users talk to them say we're going to do this would you buy it and if they say not really then don't build it people tend to spend two million pounds developing something then they'll come to me and say i've been in stealth mode for two years i don't say stealth mode so much these days but it was a big thing they want to launch and i'll go okay have you done any research will anyone really want to use this and they go this is why we've come to you and i think why didn't you day one just start to talk to some people and say will you pay for this because if you if you can't get that then no one is ever going to give you any funding you're never going to scale you're never going to ipo you're never going to exit so you're just wasting your own time probably three or four years maybe nine years of your time i've had someone recently nine years in and i'm thinking God, you could have gone off and done something with your life. It's a big chunk of time. Yeah, number one, commercial ideation, especially now with the banking crisis and all the rest of it, money being tight. But even without a banking crisis, has it got commercial legs? Will people need and pay for this service on a repeatable basis every month? The answer to that is I don't know or no, don't do it. It sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? But... I've met so many founders, I'm just thinking, let's help everyone by telling the truth rather than cope with other things. How many times have we heard the story of, oh yeah, we were having drinks at MIPIM and some great things have come out, some great ideas have come out of that, but we're having drinks at MIPIM and we came up with this idea and everyone around the table agreed it was an awesome idea. Okay, cool. How many of those people said that they would pay real money for that idea? Crickets. That's a bit of a direct question to ask my colleagues I wouldn't talk about it that way we have to because if you don't everyone's going to say oh yeah that's such a great idea awesome yeah oh cool cool I'll try it but will they actually pay you cold hard cash for it and often the answer is no yeah the concept of the MVP minimal viable product I think if you go on like Wikipedia the classic one is Somebody decided they wanted to sell shoes and they said, can I sell shoes online? So this guy thought, maybe I can sell shoes online. So he ran some adverts. He didn't have any shoes, but he ran some adverts and said, oh, would you like to buy shoes online? And people started saying, yes, I'd like to buy some shoes. So then he went to some shoe shops, bought the shoes and started to mail it to them. And they were buying it. And then he knew, "Okay, now I've got something here. I've got a system where people want to buy shoes online. 
and I've got to provide these shoes because I've got supplier for them. But before it even started, he knew that the consumers out there were going to buy something. And I see it in property technology all the time. And I'm not just talking real estate, sales and lettings, things like that. I'm talking about commercial real estate, all the rest of it. Why don't you just go to the customers who you think are going to be your customers and say, for £200 a month, will you pay for this solution? And if they go, no, I don't even want to use it, then maybe you shouldn't be developing it. But people tend to do it the other way around. Right, I built it. Now I need to force it down people's throats. And no surprise, they don't often you know, get anywhere with it. They have tiny revenues every month and fall over and uh, forever are going for new funding. I'm a big believer. I come from the other end of it. I used to run businesses where my own money went in. I want my own money out within a year. And then I want to be making serious profit. Commercial aviation, that's central to everything. All this airy fairy stuff, forget it. Cut through that. Talk about will people pay cash every month to use this service on a repeatable basis? If the answer to that is yes, you've probably got a good business. If not, move on. What would you do if you were to create a startup now? Yeah. Okay, so if I was going to do a startup now, and we're talking property technology, but any startup, I would build a community. I'd spend a year and a half finding everyone that I needed to know about what I was going to do. So instead of getting a million pounds or two million pounds or three million, I get sick of it. I get so many decks. I get so many people coming to me saying, I'm looking to raise. I've got this, that and the other. And I think, put it back to front. Why don't you do this? And I'll give you an example of this. If you've got a community, if you spend time, say, for instance, you've got a solution for, I don't know, commercial real estate, some control system for a building. Why don't you go and find everybody who's going to be a likely customer, both here in the UK and around the world. Use LinkedIn, connect with them and say, look, I'm doing this. Can I have your advice? So you're not selling to them, but you're saying, look, in the future, I think I want to develop something around this. What do you think? And you have that conversation multiple times. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of times because that's what we did at PropTech PR. We talked to thousands of people and we built a big community and then if you want to launch something, you've already got a brand, your own brand, you're known. And that's what's most important. I think if you're going to do, be selling something, you need to be known. People think I'm going to build something and it's really great. What it comes down to is when I talk to clients or people even that aren't going to be clients, I don't even look at the tech. I think it's irrelevant. Your tech might be great. It might be world class. It might be rubbish. How are you going to acquire users? What's your route to doing that? What's your network? Who do you know? And this was a classic thing the other day. Someone came to me and said, why should I use your services, Andrew? And I said, glibly, I know a lot of people. And he said, well, that doesn't really do it for me. He said, you know a lot of people. I don't really care. I don't understand that. And I thought, I can message somebody now who's extremely important in any sector, and I can connect them to you and I can actually endorse you but that's taken like six seven years of my time to do that. that's what I do every single day and also the flip side of it is I'm respected because I've given a lot of my time for free over those years helping other people 
if I was going to start a company tomorrow and I needed to ensure that I was going to get paying clients in the future, I would start connecting with them, start talking to them, start being useful to them, start to expose my personality to them. See, not everyone likes me. I don't really, it's a numbers game. You only need, I think, 25 key players who like you. And you can get a company from zero to 30 million pound sale just on 25 people. You don't need a big network, but you need the right network. But to get those key 25 people, you need to be talking to and speaking with and spending time with hundreds of people. That takes time. So it's the other way around and then build the product. But then you don't have to spend tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands on marketing. You just reach out and they go, oh, Andrew, you've built that now. Oh, yeah, I'll be quite interested because I trust you because I've known you for two years. What is this? And then they do business with you because business is all about relationships. It isn't about cold calling. It isn't about hitting people up on LinkedIn and saying, I've got this. Do you want a demonstration? I think the answer is going to be no. Or I just block people now. I'm like, I'm disinterested. But if someone comes to me who I've known for 18 months and I know they've got half a brain, I'll give them my time. I'll give them two hours. And that can be life changing for a founder. So, yeah, that's what I do. Do the groundwork. Don't think about doing sales and marketing at the end when you build it. It's too late. You've then added another two or three years to your cycle of your business. And then you've got to sustain yourself with no money for two or three years. That's really difficult, isn't it? So, Obviously, you've got your various businesses successful all in their own right. But what you're saying is, if you wanted to, you had an idea and that happened to be in prop tech, you think you could just basically do it based on your relationships that you have already. So say to someone, I'm going to do this, either do you want to invest or do you think it'd work and stuff like that? And you think quite quickly you'd be able to get something to market, which would then be in three to five years time sellable yeah i think i'm the king of it. an example of this is i know for instance if you take residential estate agency an agent will pay for a software solution if it's under 200 pound so if i were to flog something to an estate agent i'd say it's 195 pounds a month that's number one number two is i would then say in seven words what it was and number three, yeah, I'm connected with eight and a half thousand agents. I think if I sent me out today to eight and a half thousand agents saying it's £195 a month, I think it's great. I used to be an agent for 32 years. If I was still an agency, I'd use it. I think I'll get some customers. I'll probably get 300 customers. 300 customers at £200 a month is reasonable revenue from just using your own community. And that's what people miss. They go, oh, I'm going to get these salespeople. They're going to be fantastic. And they're not because at the end of the day, the last thing they want to do is to be sold to. I think if you've got a network, you can do anything. If you've got a network, you can launch anything. You, you can do anything. You can generate revenue very quickly. And the cost of acquisition is minimal because if you've already got your warm audience, it doesn't cost you anything. Because cost of acquisition is a big thing. I ask companies all the time. I say, okay, how much does it cost you to acquire a brand new signed up client? And most of them don't know. 
And they go, it's £150. And I go, okay, how many you got in your sales team? We go through it and all the rest of it. And I go, okay, it's £450 each time you get a new client. And you're charging them £79 a month. Right, okay, so how many £79 a month? I'm all about the figures. And it amazes me that people aren't about the figures. I think they've got this mythical idea. Someone's going to come along and buy me for 50 million and I'm buying a yacht. And I'm thinking for them to do that for you, they've got to look at your figures and go, these are improving figures and sustainable figures. And there's no churn and all the rest of it. And there's so much involved with that. Yeah, we've had some interesting conversations with people around how there's two kinds of prop tech founders. There's the ones that are prop and the ones that are tech and the people who often come from a property background rather than a tech background have I think some of the more compelling ideas because they've experienced firsthand the pain in the industry but so often you speak to them and you ask them what's your CPA what's your TAM and they go what are those acronyms I don't know them and then you talk to them about those and they go, oh, okay, yeah, I don't really know that. I haven't figured that out yet. I just know that I've got a really good idea and loads of people are going to buy it. Um, and then on the other side of the equation, you have people from a startup or tech background who know all the acronyms and know all the things that they ought to do and say. But at the end of the day, they don't necessarily have the experience of feeling the pain in the industry. So their process of trying to quantify whether or not they can actually sell or market their idea is long and painful in and of itself. And we need people from both sides to come towards the middle a bit. And we need the people who are from the property background who have the great ideas to put the work in to understand how to run a startup and how to run a business. And a lot of them have never even run a business before and get the numbers right um, so that they can ensure that they're actually going to invest their time and money wisely because like you say there are so many people who've sunk years and years into products that are just a sunk cost yeah i think that's very true it's given the keys where you don't need keys but to a ferrari someone who's just passed the driving test you know they're going to crash and burn that car if you give them two million pounds i've seen quite a few companies that have even on friends and family maybe have got one and a half million quid and then they come to me and they've got through all that money and i thought yeah and they just burnt it and you just think oh my god what could you now do with a million and a half uh you just squandered it and because they had no idea and they were children really and they needed some adults <laughs> and this comes back to the community so early on i was saying if you want to build a great business build a community of people because in that community there's going to be your customers but it's also going to be people can be mentors and all the rest of it and there's so much good free advice out there. There are lots of people who want to help. And that's what people do. My day job is working with founders. I work like a psychiatrist. They all have their own answers in their heads, but they need someone to talk to and then to have another voice, usually my voice, saying, okay, so what you're saying to me is this, which means you need to do that. And they go, yeah. And I'm thinking, you already had the answer, but you were unsure or you needed someone to say it back to you. So it's, I kind of mirror stuff. A famous example, we had a client in Colorado doing commercial real estate. And over the five months, he had a great service, but he couldn't articulate it. And after five months, we got it down and he got some really good clients. 
And he said, Andrew, he said, this is fantastic. He said, commercial real estate, you're a genius. And I said, the amount that I knew about commercial real estate in Colorado was zero. But in the meetings that we had and all the rest of it, I got you to tell me really what it was that you're that you were doing. And we got that down, and that's what the customer wanted, because it's all about the customer. Forget the technology, for Christ's sake, forget the technology. Michael Bristow recently talked about crowd property, and he showed the slides and he did a demonstration. It was a London PropTech show, and it was about three minutes long, and there was no technology in it whatsoever. He just had three or four customers who said, yeah, we think this is good. And he was just, it's all about the figures and how wonderful they were doing, but it was nothing about the technology. And that's why I think I would say to property technology founders, if you're selling a Hoover, don't tell them all the technical stuff. Just say you've got dirt on the carpet, it'll get rid of it. It costs 250 quid. Do you want to buy one? Because that's what they want. I've got dirt on the carpet. I'd like something to remove it. You, right. I can use a dustpan brush or I can use this thing called a Hoover. Yeah, I'll give it a go. But they don't, they go on and about so many things that when you've got a customer, a client, it's all about me. They are the most important thing in the world. Tell them what you can do for them. Park your ego up. Who cares? I get on calls. <laughs> I get on calls with some really bright people. I, two months ago, and this is a classic, I had a call from a startup and they had, we used to work for Google, had all the biggest brains in the world. And they're going, well, we just got 10 million of funding. This is fantastic. And I said, yeah, okay, great. And I said, I've just had a call with somebody else. And the team is almost identical to you. We just got through 6 million pounds and they're closing. I said, having brilliant brains means nothing to me. Have you got a service that is useful? Have you got people who are going to pay for it? Then I get excited. Just telling me I've got all these people together and they're really bright doesn't do it for me because I can put you in contact with this other company and they spent three years, spent loads of people's money, not their own. And that's a moot point as well. I think if some of your own money is on the line. It does make you think that get this moved on. And I do, especially with Silicon Valley Bank and all the rest of it, a lot of people are saying, oh, we haven't got enough money to pay the wages. And I'm thinking, yeah, but you've got like millions of dollars of investors' money if it was your own money, you'd probably have moved your companies on by now. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit frustrated with a lot of people. And, I, and I'm thinking people are now thinking money's tight, we're only investing in entities that are actually going to do something useful and be profitable. Everyone else, we're just feeding your ego, we're feeding your children for you. It's great, it's, it's a day job, but that isn't why you invest in companies, is it? How difficult is it to get funding now if you're one of those sort of either a 50-50 business or a, we're doing two grand a month and we spent 500 grand of our own money sort of thing or 1.5 million of an investors sort of thing. How hard is it either to get that second round or to actually get some in the first place? Yeah, so since quarter two last year, we saw we get involved in a lot of funding. We try to keep away from it, but you can't. And very much we could feel that things were changing even in the summer of last year before the recent problems there have been. In answer to your, how easy is it to get funding? I think it's as easy as it always was. If you've got something that can you can demonstrate is very good. And I think you've got to look at it like this. Imagine you've invented the can opener and there are lots of cans in the world, millions of them, and you are the ones come along and got a can opener. People look at that and go, that's a great idea. We can now open all the cans. 
if however you've got something that's so complicated it takes you two hours to explain to somebody what it is i'm thinking you're not going to get investment it starts to become very detached so yes it's in one sense yes it's harder but i think to be honest and it comes back to that community thing doesn't it if you've got a big community of people who trust and know you your chances of getting some funding are much much higher i get invested with a lot of accelerators scale ups all the rest of it both as a mentor as a ned and all the rest of it and nine times out of ten it will actually be right we've got some individual in front of us maybe two of them co-founders and often what the board who are thinking about putting money into them will say is do we like them it comes down to some basic stuff like that you know do we like them are they people we want to do some business with a lot of the time they don't they don't really even care what is it they're looking to solve they're like okay should we give them a go should we give them some cash it's like that it'd be really good if i could get some other people into the boardroom realizing why they don't get financing because a lot of it is down to the founders not really performing very well when you know people because they're introverts it's not their fault which gives an unfair advantage i think is people are extrovert because obviously when they are spoken to by people who want to give them some money they go oh i like these people but again it all comes back down to you've got to spend some time talking to people to get them to know you personally and, and what you're up to so say there's a founder who's been looking for investment for six months the people who could invest know them their company's improving gradually their mr they're getting to a point where they might break even in the next sort of few months but is there a point when the chance of investment has actually gone because they see who this person is how they work does it then become almost impossible to get funding from either an organization or people because you've been looking for funding for x amount of time and nobody's given it to you does that happen the reality is you'll get funding if you're favored you get favored if you get endorsed you get endorsed if people look after you people look after you because you've got a relationship with these people which is why people go down the route of i'm going to have a ned and i'm thinking yeah have a ned but only have a ned if they have got a big community if they work for a big company fantastic but once they've used those contacts how useful to you are they going to be the reality is right it's a very tiny community people know which are good companies and which companies don't pass the sniff test and that's the big thing and I endorse companies and people come to me all the time and they're thinking of investing in, in certain companies and I'll tell them the truth what I feel about the companies now obviously 99% of them aren't my clients but they'll say we think I'll put some money into that and I'll do an Andrew Stanton and I'll just tell them the truth and I'll say do you realize this do you realize this company over in America is doing this do you imagine do you understand that actually the total addressable market is it might be four billion most of that four billion has already got players in that space doing really well and we've got a tiny little company based in Essex who thinks they're going to take that marketplace what they need to realize is there's 25 other companies doing it and better than them but they'll probably find some idiots who've never heard of this and think it's a great idea now I actually think you could probably raise money saying well I've got an idea it's called the property portal because there'll be people going oh that sounds like a great idea because it's just about We've got this idea 
and people are naive and stupid and you can always get funding but there's funding and there's i want to grow a business that can get to a situation where it can either ipo or i can exit that's a completely different thing getting cash i think I think people could make a plausible play around a deck that they can put together and they can probably find some people and all the rest of it. But what is the point? All that happens is I need more funding, I need more funding, I need more funding, oh, I've got to pivot the model and all this nonsense. And I'm just sick and tired of it now, actually. I just thought, when I get in calls with people, I go, yeah, that sounds great. And they go, do you want to get involved with this? And I go, no. I said, there's three other companies doing it much better than you. I spend my day, all my days talking and finding out who's doing what. And not just here in the UK, Australia, America. And it amazes me if someone, it's a bit like, if I got up in the morning and thought I'm going to design penicillin, I'd probably Google to see if penicillin existed. But these people spend money, often their own money, and they're trying to build or do something that's already there. You know, so there might be something that needs to be sold, but someone's already doing it and they think, oh, it's my idea. And I think often in calls, I'll say, have you heard of this company? And they go, oh, no. <laughs> and then they look at it and then all of a sudden the meeting slows down and they go, oh, they're doing something very similar to us. And I said, yeah, they've been doing it for six years or 10 years. I spoke um, to a tech founder recently who basically thought he'd invented Trello. Yeah. Bless him. Sweet hmm. guy. But like, you could literally just make this in Trello, just write some cards and then it would do exactly what you've built here. And it taken him like three or four years, loads of his own money. And it was just like blank, just complete lack of recognition or understanding that there are even generic tools out there that can do a lot of what people are trying to build themselves. Where do you see Andrew? prop tech in one to three years time based on where it is now i see that it's winning it's a force that you can't beat so for as much as the doomsters as boris would say unfortunately or fortunately digital is the way it's all going and what really is happening is there's lots of companies racing to be the, well, I'm going to be the top in this sector, I'm going to be the top in that sector. So there'll be maturity, and especially now, there'll be companies that are wiped out because they can't get any more funding. Maybe there's 12 people trying to be the top in this, in ESG or something like that. And then they'll be the top. And then everyone will go, okay, that race has been run. Everyone goes to that company to do this solution. So I'm just thinking, I sit there and I go, if you're right, if you're doing something in property, and when I say property, deal with everything. So from the plan, the build, sale, lease, and running a building. So we touch all five elements. Huge amount of money has been poured into that. Things are going to change. So I think it's, it's a case that in three years time, where will we be? we'll be in a much better place because things will be going forward much more quickly it's quite interesting i looked at a trade magazine for one of the state agency trade magazines and i looked at it and it was full maybe three quarters of it was talking about property technology and I, it made me laugh because like i started out this in 2017 everyone's making fun of me and going oh property technology digitizing stuff getting rid of analog processes 
that's all rubbish. And I'm thinking three quarters of one of the publications now talks about property technology. So, you know, that's happened since 2017. So I just see it as speeding up. I think by the end, by the time we get to, right, by the time we get to 2030, I think we'll be pretty much there. And also a lot of the old men will have retired as well. And the younger people will be coming through, be getting on the boards, will be coming CEOs and chairs and stuff like that. And they'll understand it. So there'll be no, we need to sell you this idea. It will just be, that's how you run a modern business, isn't it? You run a modern business in a digital fashion. Everyone talks about what's really interesting is big data. Everyone's been going on about big data for a long, long time. Now people are actually looking at it and seeing the trends in this data and getting useful stuff from it and then building things around that, saying, oh, we didn't know this trend. Like work, for instance. People now know how people are now working. I'm not just talking working from home. In terms of when they actually go into offices and all the rest of it, a lot of companies aren't open on a Friday or people aren't going in on a Friday and all the rest of it. But more than that, to retain people, they're actually having to go back to human beings and saying, OK, if we want to get you back in the office, what do we need to do? And I saw the other day, I think it was Hex Sausages, are saying they've got a, a dog hotel. So you can take your dog in and there's a hotel that your dog can stay. And I'm thinking, oh, that's useful because obviously I love my dog, Zara. And I'm thinking that would get me back in the office if I, there was a dog hotel and my, my little dog was running around having a nice time. That would get me back in. But I'm thinking that's what's happening now. Technology is allowing us to do work anywhere in the world at any time. If you've got an organisation, and I was talking to someone just before this call, and he was saying, look, Andrew, what people have got to realise is not everyone is white collar. Not everyone is in a tech space. A lot of the industries still are. This is, comes back to Tesla. At the end of the day, exactly if you work from home, you need to be on the production line making these cars. So his view was we've got to have people in. Must. Whereas you've got like Siemens, who when we had the first lockdown said, OK, you can only, if you want to, you only need to come in two days a week because we fully understand you want to be more flexible. But it depends on the nature of the work that you're doing. If you're physically putting something together, you probably need to be in a factory unit putting those things together. It's not a huge amount of production here in the UK anymore. But if we're doing work, then it needs to be working for the people who are doing the work. And I think that software can allow us to do that in a better way. And But also, going back to the big data thing, was we can listen and look at what the trends are, what makes people want to work for our organization how can we make it a better experience that they'll actually want to stay with our organization because we can monitor all this we can look at all this data around this person stayed with us for 10 years why stayed with us for 10 years it isn't just because we give them more money give them more status or whatever what other things are they getting out of it and you can break that down whereas before people were just making they've just stayed here because they like it they like it but what are the things that make them like staying here and then we're coming back then, of course, to good old-fashioned data. How much do companies now understand or people understand how your personal life can affect, obviously, your business life? Have you seen how it has an effect on people or what people want to do or how people then reflect on life should something happen? Yeah, what's your sort of take on that? Yeah, so in a previous life, I was the boss or the business owner you didn't want to work for. I was in a state agency, and my view was, we'll pay you tons of money, but you've got to perform. And when you don't perform, I'll withdraw my love, and you probably won't want to stay in the organisation. 
because I thought, okay, I make money because I sell houses. Vendors pay me money to sell their houses. If their houses don't get sold, the vendors aren't very happy and I don't make any money. Now I'm older, I'm talking about 30 years ago, that's my mentality. My mentality now would be if I start a business, we're all in this together. If people are working with me, they're not working as employees. We're just in an organization. I'm not talking about communism, but I'm just saying we've all got funny little animals and different things do different things for us. And we need different things. And obviously you're touching on mental health and other things in your question, but also we've had COVID. And I think COVID has just made everyone go, do you know what? Life's too short. I could be dead tomorrow. Therefore, I should have each day as a good day for me. And these outside sort of controller elements, such as my employer, I need to be looking at that. And actually, oh, now with technology, I can work from home because during the lockdown, I had to work from home. Yeah, for me, yeah, I'm like the other way around. I wouldn't say anyone would want to work with me because I'm still nuts and I'm still ferocious and I still demand everybody should do everything yesterday and be psychic and be doing stuff that's just in my head and I can't understand why people aren't. But pushing that aside, I think I would take time to understand everybody I work with and say, okay, what do you need? So you're married or you've got a partner, you've got a couple of kids, you've got this. So these are the results that we need every week, every month. Can you manage that? One of the things that I found, and it goes back to, again, it goes back to agency days. I used to have a couple of salespeople, and one was called Alan Griggs. And he said he was an estate agent, but all he used to do was smoke fags and go down the pub. But every week he would sell three properties. He'd never ring his applicants. He'd disappear on a Wednesday afternoon. I don't know what you're doing then. But our sales week would finish on Wednesday night and he would come in on a Wednesday and he would book three sales. He'd say, right, here's three sales. And they'd give me three memos of sales. And he'd done that. And I had another guy, Wicked Winslow, David Winslow, and he was, he'd ring all his applicants. He'd run all the systems. He'd do everything backwards. And he would sell three houses too. So they were fundamentally different people. Alan Gricks, in fact, looking back at it, he'd be the guy that I would never have in the office. I wouldn't need to have him in the office. God knows what. But he was very sociable. He knew a lot of people and he would just make a couple of calls. And this is in the days for mobile. So now he'd be brilliant. He'd probably be on a yacht somewhere just doing deals. And that's, But knowing that means that you can't say everyone's got to work like Mr. Winslow and do it like him. Because it doesn't suit everybody. If you've got children at home and all the rest of it, maybe working from home, as long as you're doing, as long as you're selling three houses. Now, I'm using the analogy of being an estate agent, but again, in certain companies where you want a certain result, as long as they're doing their result, I wouldn't care if you could do that in two hours or actually it takes you two weeks to get that result. If I'm going to pay you £4,000, but at the end of every month you've done that, I don't really give a monkey's. In the old days, though, I'd be thinking, I want to be in the same office space as you and make sure that you're doing my work. And now that's totally different. And that's taken years, but also it's made me realise, you know what? Everyone's entitled to a life. And it's the life-work balance that's really important, isn't it? It would be really nice to think, actually, we can have great lives and do this thing called work, but around our lives rather than the other way around, which is generational change in attitude, isn't it? Jesus Christ, I'm a bit of a dinosaur, but with the technology, I can do so much stuff anywhere.
I love what you said about work-life balance or life-work balance, as you put it, more appropriately. I think part of the shift, obviously COVID played a huge part, but so many of us just grew up without seeing much of one or both of our parents. They had to work really hard all the time at work. And now that the next generation are having children of their own and they're wanting to build good relationships with those kids and build a future for their family, they want to be present. They don't want to spend the overwhelming majority of their time away from their family and then when they come home eventually from work, they see their families for a very short amount of time. They're tired and cranky and they're not in a good frame of mind. That's not the relationship that you want to build. And people know when you get to the end of your life and you're looking back, what's the stuff that you regret? It's always, oh, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. So I think people are thinking ahead to that now and they're trying to make choices now that they're going to be proud of in years to come. I spent 30 years mostly in big goldfish bowls with pane glass windows, estate agents, offices, and married three kids. And as they grew up, I can remember Katie was the youngest child at the age of 10. I think to get time with her, she'd be strapped into my car and we'd be going out doing board checks. We'd be physically going around seeing who'd sold what and all the rest of it. I'm talking about years and years ago. And she thought it was great. And I was, I'm looking back, I think it's a bit sad. The only time that she could get time with me was to come in the office when I was still working, you know, and see dad at work. And that's crazy, isn't it? And that's why, really, I've got a real sweet spot for estate agents because I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, don't spend all those years in those glass boxes. You don't need to do agency like that. If I'm thinking there needs to be flex with sales teams. If you own a company, you don't, God, why have somebody in your office for 10 hours? Wouldn't they be better off if they're at home? If they have to go out and do the functions within agency, they can do that at home. They don't need to be, it doesn't have to be, we're all in a submarine together for years and years doing all this stuff. It really can be a balance of the family and all the rest of it. And everyone's a bit happier. And then when it comes down to it, everyone gets burnt out, don't they? In agency, every 18 months, your staff turn around. There's a massive churn. Obviously, because you just get sick of it. You just go, oh, my God, it's grinding. Dealing with the general public is really difficult. Dealing with the general public when they're buying or selling a property or even in the letting side, it's all problems, isn't it? Problems, problems, problems every day, every day, every day, every day. So, you know, maybe if you're doing some of that at home, at least you get some downtime from the very fact that you were away from the stressy work environment. It sounds like they need a sort of online estate agency with like purple, maybe a purple colour. <laughs> well, I've had a real go at purple bricks since they started, but a lot of things they got right, which is we're going to charge you up front even if you don't sell, because agents are crazy. We've listed your house, we've had it on the market 20 weeks, we never sold it because it's not too much money, you'd never reduce the price. And we've had 16 viewings, we've had it, we've done all the marketing and we're charging you nothing. It's a bit like going into a hotel for 20 weeks and going, okay, yeah, didn't really like it, not paying you a thing. And Purple Bricks said, no, pay us up front. The downside is with Purple Bricks was really they just listed stuff. I always thought, well, actually, what they need to do is have a second part of Purple Bricks, which is the sales force. But the problem there being that it'd be even more expensive and they make even less money. So it's, 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 it's a problem, isn't it? I bought uh, my house with Purple Bricks. Yeah. And 
I think that we probably got a better deal than we could have got if the marketing had been professionally done. In fact, we almost didn't come and see the house because the photographs were dismal. Then we came and saw in person and we're like, oh, this is actually a great house. This is cool. We really love it. We want to move here. It's an anecdotal story, but I know a lot of people who like both through Purple Bricks because they, they're really badly marketed. Often the prices are wrong. Sometimes they're high, sometimes they're low, but we love it because we're dealing with the vendor and we usually skin the vendor. And that's what an agent does. The agent works for the, for the vendor. And whereas listing platforms, yeah, put buyer and seller together, usually the buyer's going to win that one. Put an agent in the middle of that negotiation process, probably he, she is going to negotiate a much better price for the vendor. Brilliant. Look, thank you for your time, yeah. Andrew. know how precious it is. Thanks for joining us on the PropTech Growth Podcast. To learn more, you can find us on LinkedIn or email proptechpodcast at icloud.com. See you next time.